Let us pray. God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened. Amen. The scripture reading is from the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt, and so that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day they ate the produce of the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. The word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then 11b through 32. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 952 and 953. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners. And eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost, and he has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe a few people in here know this about me, but I'm an only child. And for those of you with brothers and sisters, you you may think that's a blessing. Um, But I'll tell you, it it has its advantages and disadvantages like everything else in life. There's, There's a reason they call us the lonely only sometimes. I was very fortunate in my growing up that God blessed me with lots of cousins and some strong relationships with my cousins. In fact, I I just spoke to one of them this weekend on the phone. Now, that's not the same as siblings, but it's close enough, and I learned enough about siblings through my cousins who had siblings. Now, I had two cousins on my mom's side, my mom's youngest sister. She had two children. Their name were Carrie and Will. Carrie was a girl, she was a year older than me, and Will was a boy, and he was a year younger than me. So we had a lot in common. They didn't live that far away from us, so we spent a lot of time together throughout the year, and we were definitely together almost every summer out of the farm. I do remember one incident at a very early age that taught me about sibling relationships. Now, my cousin Will was quite jealous of my abundant inventory of G.I. Joe's. And you gentlemen out there that are around my age understand what a big deal that was. In fact, my cousin Will still brings it up when we talk (laughs) as adults. And I will have to admit that I was blessed with an abundant collection. I even had one of those wooden foot lockers with the G.I. Joe that you could put all your things in. That was a really big deal to have one of those. If something new came out, I got it pretty quickly. Well, one day I was back in my room with Carrie and Will, my cousins, and we were playing with G.I. Joes, and the Frogman G.I. Joe was really coveted. And the two of them began to kind of bicker over who was going to play with the Frogman G.I. Joe. And to my shock, they suddenly broke out into this brawl between the two of them. I mean, fist flying, hair pulling. I couldn't believe what was going on. Well, I did the one thing that an only child could do in a situation like that. I ran to get my mom. (laughs) And by the time I got back to the room with mom in tow, Carrie and Will were sitting quietly on the floor playing with the G.I. Joes like nothing had happened. 
I'm sure they were maybe a little roughed up and kind of disheveled. I didn't really notice. But by and large, they seemed happy to be playing together again. I was dumbfounded. I mean, how could two people that really looked like they were trying to kill each other all of a sudden stop and begin playing with each other again in just a few short minutes? I think siblings learn how to fight, but they also learn how to reconcile. My education with siblings continued when I became a father of two children myself, both of them very, very different in their approach to life, yet I love each of them equally even with their many differences. But sibling relationships have been complicated, really since the first siblings, Cain and Abel. And that was a rivalry that really didn't work out too well. In our parable today, we have a biblical case of sibling rivalry. As Jesus tells this parable, a prosperous landowner has two sons. The youngest son can't wait for his father's death before he gets his inheritance. Now, despite the public shameful insult to the father, the father gives the younger son his share of the family property. Now, for us to understand the depth of that insult that this young son has brought upon the father, as well as their whole family, we need to look no farther in the Hebrew tradition than in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21. Chapter 21, verses 18 through 21, tells us exactly how a Hebrew family should handle this situation. Starting in verse 18, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, who does not heed them when they discipline him, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the eldest elders of the town at the gate of that place. They shall say to the elders of the town, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. That was their tradition. The father would have been very aware of that tradition, The son would have been aware, all the members of the family would have been aware, and all of their neighbors would have known that that is the way that you handled a rebellious son. But the father does not take that action. He gives his son what he asked for. The youngest son takes this inheritance and runs off to some first century Las Vegas where he squanders his inheritance on wild living and ends up eating alongside the pigs that he's reduced to feeding. Then one day at the end of his proverbial rope, with no options really left for him, he comes to himself, and he decides that he might try and return home. Even if his father will not take him back as a son, maybe he would simply treat him as one of the hired hands. It certainly had to be better than living with the pigs. So he turns toward home. You have to know that that was a very long, long walk. As he drew near to home, people would recognize him, and they would know what he had done to his father, and they most certainly would hurl insults at him. He's braced for this humiliation. He knows he will face it. 
However, as he comes over the hill inside of his home, he sees his father running to greet him with open arms. The prodigal cannot even deliver his groveling speech about how he deserves nothing more than to be a hired hand, the speech that he had rehearsed over many weeks and many dusty road miles. Before he knows it, the father is wrapping him in the finest robe and has put a ring on his finger. And that robe and that ring would have come from the father's possessions. It is the royal treatment, literally. Before he can wipe a tear from his eye, a fatted calf has been killed, and most of the town has been invited to a spectacular party. It's a shindig of, well, biblical proportions. I did hear one person describe this as a Texas-style barbecue. Or maybe here in South Carolina, we might say it is the oyster roast to end all oyster roasts. For most of us, we would be perfectly satisfied if the story ended right there. Then we could say that Jesus wants to tell us that the kingdom of God is like a Texas barbecue. You or I, he or she, can come back to God and God celebrates our return. Not too shabby ending. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The story continues. He brings in the older brother, the eldest sibling, the one who by law who should have received two-thirds of the inheritance. He's not happy. He's not happy at all about this, about this display of celebrating his wayward and insulting kid brother. Now, he has not insulted the father. He's not shot his inheritance on prostitutes and good times. He's just worked, worked day in, day out, year after year, and his father has never even tossed him a low country boil for he and his friends. He's mad. He won't even set foot in the house or partake in the celebration, which would also be an insult to his father. Now, I think most of us in the telling of this story try to relate to the older brother. He's been very responsible. He's behaved well. He has prudently kept his inheritance secure. Well, I think the older brother must be a Presbyterian. Now, the little brother, on the other hand, has sinned greatly, but he's enjoyed it. And for his punishment, he's getting a party of a lifetime. Certainly, the big brother has an opportunity or a right to have a little resentment. But in this story, as Jesus tells it, the father does not argue or put or get upset or angry with the older brother, nor does he defend the younger brother. Instead, he shifts the attention away from both the brothers. The father turns the attention to his own love and abundance. There's plenty to go around, he says in so many words. No one will run short. He tells the oldest brother, all that is mine is yours. This is not your younger brother's party so much as it is my party the party that I will throw for many. Your brother was not lost, but now he is found. Our family is whole again. Your brother is whole again. It's really that simple. Behind Jesus' parable lies a profound and overwhelming truth about God and God's kingdom. We've all been lost at one time or another. We've all at times squandered God's blessing. But before we could sink too deep in the slop, God raised us up and called us home. It is just not about you or me, or about my sin or your sin or what I deserve or what you deserve. It's not about our entitlement. It's about God 
and about God's life-giving love and mercy. Every time that God's active, stretching, searching, healing love finds someone and calls that person back home, it does not mean that there is less for the rest of us. It means that there is more. More unconditional love, more grace, more feasting, more music, more dancing. It means another and now even bigger party that is open for everyone. As you heard a little while ago, Chip talking about our, the trip to Honduras, I had the good fortune to go on that trip. And while I was there, I met another only child. His name was Henry. He was the four-year-old son of Cesar and Rosala. Cesar ran a barbershop in Santa Ana, Honduras, just across the street from the Habitat job site where we were working. Cesar's barbershop was in the front end of his in-law's house. His mother-in-law had a beauty parlor on the other side. And behind the shops were the family's living quarters. Cesar, Rosal, and Henry were frequent visitors to the job site, and through our guide and translator, he shared a story with us one day. Cesar wanted to provide a home for his family. Although he had a job, he was a barber, and from all we saw that week, he had a pretty steady business, but he didn't have enough money to buy his own property. Now, most Hondurans do support themselves with little shops, even if they have a job. They may have a little shop out in front of their house and sell things to supplement their income, or it may be the only income they have. But one day in his barbershop, Cesar heard that there would be a property across the street that might be developed by Habitat. So he and Rosala began to make inquiries. They saw the government running power poles into the area and a water line was laid down. There would eventually be 24 houses in that neighborhood, they found out. Cesar and Rosala began the arduous task of filling out the Habitat paperwork. And when they finally completed the application and turned it in, they were given a date when they could expect to be called back. So they waited. They waited and they waited and they watched activity continue on the job site. One day their pastor came to Cesar's barbershop to get a haircut. And Cesar shared with him about the property that was going up across the street and about how they had been praying and dreaming about having a home of their own. After his haircut, the pastor invited the whole family to walk over to the property, and they gathered around and stood together and held hands and prayed that this family would be blessed by God with a home, a place to live, a place for little Henry to call home. One evening after dinner, after talking about the property for probably the thousandth time, Cesar and Rosalind Henry walked across the street, and they gathered up some dirt and rocks from the site to keep in their apartment as they remembered their prayers, remembered their hopes and dreams. Little Henry kept his scoop of dirt in a little jar in his room so he could remember and pray for it. Finally, the day came when they should hear from Habitat. The day wore on and they heard nothing. But in the last 30 minutes of the day, they got the call. Come down to the Habitat office and collect your papers. You're going to get a house. Eighteen families were chosen that day that would eventually spread to 24 families in that neighborhood. Habitat wanted to immediately begin getting these families involved, building their new homes. 
Now, if you've ever done this type of work before, you know that you have to be very careful with everything you're doing and making sure that it is very fair and equal to everyone involved. You don't want to let jealousy or rivalry enter into uh, the organization at any level. I mean, I've seen actually when we're building houses, uh, multiple houses in Honduras or Haiti or even Appalachia here in the U.S., you must make sure that no family appears to be getting ahead of the other. So Habitat decided that the best way to do that, to select the lots for the family, was to have a drawing. They had a building plan drawn up that showed all the different lots in the neighborhood. They let the families look at it, and then they would have a drawing to let the families choose which lot was theirs. Well, it didn't take long for those 18 families looking at this diagram to figure out which was the better lot. It was lot number one. Lot number one had many attributes. It was slightly, and I really mean slightly, larger than the others. And because it was the first lot, when you entered the neighborhood, it would only have one house next to it, house number two, where many of the other houses would have a house on either side plus a house across the street. Lot number one would also have the planned green space across the street from it, so you walked out your front door, you would be looking into green space instead of someone else's home. So it was that Cesar and Rosala and Henry began to dream and pray that they would get lot number one. On the day of the drawing, all the families gathered at the building site. The Habitat folks had made it a festive event with decorations and refreshments. But we can just assume that there was a bit of tension in the air. Everyone was assured a house, but who would get the perceived best house, the best home site? and of course, the coveted lot number one. Names were called and several people came forward to draw. Cesar and Rosala waited nervously. Then their name was called. It was their time to draw their lot number. Cesar bent down and told little Henry, why wouldn't he go up and represent the family and be the one that selected their number? So Henry dutifully walked up the table and stuck his tiny hand into the jar and came out with lot number, lot number one. Lot number one. And this is actually a picture I took at their house. This is the number that's in front of their house in Honduras. That's where this came from. That's why I wanted to show it to you. These stories you've heard today are not about human beings and their abilities to make good and bad decisions. These are not stories about fate. What you have heard today is God's story. The story of the prodigal son, the story of Cesar, Rosala, and Henry are more about a determined, compassionate, infinite, providential God than it is about the way of God's prodigal children. So if you ever make it down to Santa Ana, Honduras, stop in at house number one in the Habitat neighborhood. Cesar, Rosala, and Henry will welcome you and offer you something cool to drink. You will be welcome in their house and welcome at their table as a long-lost friend. That's how life should be in the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.